This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. The myths that surround the foundation of Rome are a potent brew. Romulus and Remus, the sons of Mars, raised by a she-wolf in the woods of Latium. The Sabine women raped by the Latins. Aeneas, the Trojan general, wrecked off Carthage, loved by Dido, and finally founding a new civilization on the banks of the Tiber. According to William Shakespeare, after Brutus slayed his friend Caesar, he claimed, not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. But what was the idea of Rome that demanded such devotion? And how was an identity forged that exported its values to the greatest empire the world had ever seen? Rome has meant republicanism as well as imperialism and tyranny. It has stood for Pax Romana and also for the machinery of war. It's an eternally pagan city that still beats as the Catholic heart of the Christian church. With me to discuss the invention or inventions of Rome is Mary Beard, reader in classics at Cambridge University, Catherine Edwards, lecturer in classics and ancient history at Birkbeck College, London University, and Greg Wolfe, professor of ancient history at St Andrews University. Greg Wolfe, starting with you, will you outline for us the story of Romulus and Remus? Who were they and how did they end up founding Rome? Well, the story we have, it is two brothers raised by a wolf who go on to have divine auguries about where the city should be. They fall out over who has the right auguries, and it ends up with Remus jumping over the ploughed furrow that marks the sacred boundary of Romulus's city and getting murdered by his brother. So Rome starts with fratricide. Well, what evidence do we have for that, Mr Wolf? <laughs> <laughs> but it's all true, because <laughs> the Romans wrote it. <laughs> That's the Romulus and Remus that we ended up with. <laughs> that answer could be just kind of a tiny bit evasive. I mean, there we are. We've got Romulus and Remus. Uh, you said it with great authority and saying, I approve of all that. So what's the source? It's, the, it's, the, it's one of 67 different stories about Romulus and Remus. Sometimes there wasn't Remus. Sometimes there were three brothers. Sometimes there was one, several others. What's weird about Rome is they choose out of 67 alternatives the one that ends up that way, with brothers killing each other. So where does it first appear? I mean, which century does it first appear? We're talking... This is supposed to have happened about the 6th century BC? About the 8th century BC. All right, 8th century BC. You see, it's as vague as that. My notes don't even know. Um, When did this appear? When was this first written down? I think there are early versions come from the 5th century, but most of them come from a lot later. And the versions that we have come from the 1st century BC, the last century BC, and then get stuck in that canonical version repeated for the next few hundred years. Is, was, there any, was there an actual King Romulus? I've no idea. Nobody has any idea. Our first Roman historians write at the very end of the 3rd century. Greeks weren't very interested before that. And so what we have is a long view back from past that's probably been mythologised and remythologized several times already by the time it first gets into, into handwriting. Okay, Mary Beard, the other great story of Rome, (laughs) 
see how, <laughs> see how this one goes, is the tale of Aeneas, the son of Venus, uh, and a Trojan noble who eventually finds Rome after escaping the fall of Troy. Can you give us a brief account of the journey of Aeneas and how well, he came from Troy to Rome? This one's true, of course, unlike Greg's. Um, <laughs> and can you just give us some sort of date for this? Oh, now that's a trickier one. Um, because this is a fallout of the Trojan War. You know, you've got um, the, you know, the greatest Greek myth ever. Um, Greeks go off and um, bash up and destroy the city of Troy. Um, some place, well, let's put it um, 1200 BC, guys, I think. We'd be Round happy with. We'd be happy with. If, give or if, take a century. Give or take a century. Oh, we'd be happy with ancient history. I, the history <laughs> I wrote, which is called modern history, from 400 to, to 1900, you had to have real dates. If you said 1833 instead of 1832, you failed. Well, that's, and you, you, you're trading centuries. Yeah, this as is if why you're we, some kind of Middle East bazaar. Yeah, we like it like that, you see. That's, All right, so around the 12th century, okay, 13th century yeah, BC, so this you, might have happened. This right, might have okay? happened. But yeah, anyway, fine. the crucial thing is that one of the fallouts, the crucial thing for the whole history of the world is not the great victory over the Trojans, who then, you know, were annihilated forever, but that from this nasty burning bit of rubble escapes this plucky, dastardly character called Aeneas, who, um, by a series of tricky and sometimes heroic fanatical adventures, manages to fetch up, after, you know, rejecting a few queens en route, fetch up with a rather depleted band on the shores of Italy where um, after you know, some more signal and not entirely pleasant fighting, establishes himself with a little proto-Rome, which a few centuries later, moving by you know, several miles, becomes the Rome that we know. And why did they want... Now, there's, there's probably even less evidence there is than there is for uh, Greg Wolfe's um, Robinson Remus, but... Uh, why did they want that myth to be there? Well, I think it's a, a really interesting myth about the Romans' view of themselves because the, the thing it's telling you is that uh, if, if you buy into this myth, and it's different with Romulus and Remus, if you buy into this one, what you're saying is Rome always existed elsewhere. Right? that Rome is not a city which comes up from its native land. Rome, Romans are always foreigners. And as Ro the Roman Empire expands and, of course, eventually comes to take over the very places from which uh, they believe they originated, then you get an enormous amount of uh, cultural play between Rome as being Italian and Rome as always already being Asian. So it's a kind of it's it's a, a version of a founding legend which is completely different from most of the other ones we have from the ancient world. Mostly they say, look, I'm an Athenian and I was born from the soil of Athens, and the, you know, my you know my first ancestor comes up out of you know the literally out of the furrow of this place. And the Roman Aeneas legend is saying, no, 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 uh, we were always already foreign, and it's a version which can be sloganised at a certain sense later into a whole set of questions about who's going to count as Roman. Uh, Catherine, how, how did anybody try to... S no, just a second, I'm finished. The, when, did this, when did this Aeneas thing... We told it in the 3rd century BC. Uh, we told that Romulus and Remus began to take some sort of shape and we really established for certain that they were the sons of Mars and that sort of thing. Now, when did the Aeneas uh, uh, myth take... Well, uh, so it's got, when got did it appear in, in, in the records if I can use such a word in ancient history, uh, 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 saying this is really the way Rome was founded. Well, same problem, really, because 
Aeneas is a kind of bit part player in the Greek legends of all this. So you can trace a figure called Aeneas, you know, back to um, the Greek traditions of the Trojan War. But if you say, when does this become worked up as a Roman story about itself? Well, you know, one could be happily seen this in the third century BC. Um, but why we know it is because in the first century BC, it becomes a particularly useful version to tell. And a, and a great poem, which certain people were forced to study uh, for A-levels. Um, and which Roman schoolboys were forced to study for their version of A-levels <laughs> from the moment the thing came out. Right? Um, Catherine, how were these two squared, these Romulus and Remus and Aeneas? Can you give us some idea? Were they squared? How were they squared? There's a great gap between them. Uh, the around 1,200 of Catherine... Uh, uh, sorry, of Mary ahead of me, and the around 600, uh, 800 of Greg on my right. How are they squared? Well, the way they're, they're linked up is to say that Romulus's mother, the father of Romulus and Remus is, is Mars, but the mother of Romulus and Remus is um, descended from the son of Aeneas. So they're, they're, they're sort of various generations in between, and, and all this is, is um, told, in, in, at least in the version we have in the Aeneid, um, in book six of the poem, um, Aeneas goes down into the underworld and meets his dead father, and his father gives him this, this kind of view forward across the centuries. This is Virgil's great account of the Aeneas. That's yeah. right. Um, so Aeneas' father gives Aeneas this account of, of um, how his descendants will include Romulus and Remus, and then he looks forward to kind of later generations of Roman rulers as well. And these are two very powerful founding myths, and there they are. Uh, Romulus and Remus, one of the things they took in, we are told in the myth, they took in immigrants and criminals, criminals even, That's into right. the city. Uh, Aeneas came from Troy, by all over the place, and so on and so forth. So we're talking about foreigners being, not as, uh, as, 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 as Mary said earlier, growing out of the soil of the particular place. What is that, what's Rome trying to tell itself and other people by saying that? Well, I think all kinds of different things, but very importantly, that you don't have to be born in Rome to be a Roman. Um, that's absolutely crucial to Roman identity. Uh, and Which is say, very important when the empire develops, yes, isn't it? Yes, absolutely so. In fact, you don't even need to have visited Rome to become a Roman in later centuries. So um, the to Romulus, when he's founding Rome, um, in order to increase the population, invites in all this kind of rabble. It could be slaves, it could be criminals, as you say, anybody can, can be made into a Roman. And that's important for... Do you think that helps Rome in not only sense of itself but in the way it develops and expands? Absolutely, that um, Roman citizenship in later centuries can be granted to different communities of people. They can come to see themselves as Roman to identify with Rome. Um, even though they may not be descended from people born in the city. And even though they may live in the outward reaches. And even though they may live... live in the... Another aspect that comes from this, Greg, is the, the is, as you mentioned, is the violence. I mean, Romulus kills Remus. There's a great deal of violence in the, in the stories of Aeneas, as, as, uh, as, uh, as Mary pointed out. Uh, what's this... Uh, and Rome is accepting this. As, this is how we came about. Well, what's myths aren't saying? comforting. I mean, myths aren't... No, I didn't want it to be comforting. I wanted to know what, yourself, why, they, why they want to say these... Uh, these uh, particular things about themselves. Well, the, the, the versions we have written down, the versions that selected ended up in the classics, the Roman classics, mm -hmm. were written down after 50 years of absolutely vicious civil war. Rome's been tearing itself to pieces. Roman armies have been prowling around the Mediterranean, taking each other out. Various allies and people have been brought in. Back in the city of Rome, politician after politician has been assassinated. They look around, they see themselves as a you know, pathologically... Um, 
self-destructive nation. What is it about us? How did this happen? And they look back and they see a myth history of violence that all these unions... It's not like so many Greek myths of origin where you get a happy arrival of somebody led by a god and here's some nice native women and they kind of hook up. Heracles goes and meets the nymph Galatea. They have a night of passion. Out come the Gauls the other end. Rome isn't like that. You're Excuse right. me. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> Pull yourself together. Right, sorry. <laughs> and the point is, surely, that, that it's not that these myths were pre-existing and then somehow Rome thought, my goodness me, how appropriate our myths are about ourselves. Um, these myths are being constantly reformulated in um, reaction to how the Romans are negotiating their identity, etc. So, you know, why this myth becomes the canonical myth rather than the 66 mm. other versions is because it's the one that's most useful for us. But until, it gets stuck, until, until they get it stuck into literature and the literature gets stuck into the education and then they got to live with Aeneas and Romulus for centuries, whether or not that's, that's appropriate yeah. anymore. Actually, they before, have... before he talked about Gauls coming out the other end, you were actually sort of saying, making a, a view of themselves, that it was almost like, look, we were victims, we were always like this, you can't blame us for going around killing people all around the Mediterranean. There was that element you were leading, there was that element in what you were saying I thought, Greg. Yeah, I, I wasn't intending the sort of something nasty in the Roman woodshed to spin on it really. No, no I There's wasn't intending that, that either. No. This is, there, it was just sort of an excuse. Look, we are, you, you were the one who said they went around the Mediterranean, terrible civil wars, taking each other yes. out and so forth. And then they looked back and said well look, we were always being like this, we can't help yes. it very much, we killed each other from the beginning. This is Leave what us it alone. is to be Roman. Yes. Yes. Being yes. Roman is somebody who kills other Romans for yeah. preference. Yeah. Now, that's a, that, that, that we've talked about the founding myths and bringing in there. Now, can I just, I'm obviously sorry about this, but in your terms, this is a mere flick of an eyelid. Go fast forward to Augustus, uh, the emperor, after the civil wars which involved Caesar and so on and so forth. And he sets, he is, he is made, given control of the armies, he's made emperor. And he wants to, Established, and he sets about establishing a golden age. Suetonius says he could boast to inherited in Rome if he inherited in brick and left it marble. Um, can you just uh, tell us, Catherine, what Augustus set out to do and when? It's, it's the, the turn of uh, BC AD, isn't it? Right. That's right. Well, the exact moment when Augustus comes to power is, in a way, quite hard to pinpoint. I mean, the sort of civil war going on through the, the, the 30s. Um, he finally defeats Antony in, in 31 BC, and um, from that point, it's kind of consolidating his power. You mentioned the way in which he inherits Rome a city of brick and turns it into a city of marble. Uh, the city of Rome was notorious in the later years of the Republic for being very scruffy, and it commanded this enormous empire, but, you know, the public buildings were in a shocking state. There were some really spectacular ones put up by individual generals trying to make their mark on the city, but the overall effect of the city was supposed to be, you know, rather uh, disappointing. But Augustus turns it into a capital that's worthy of an empire, as Suetonius also emphasises. So that was one way in which, um, you know, he's, he's presenting his, his own authority. Another way was actually almost to employ, maybe that's too severe a term and you'll correct me, writers to write up the history of Rome. This is where we get the the beginning of the writing of Rome and the history of Rome, do we? Well, that's right. Um, uh, and we're term, talking about Livy. And well, Livy, um, Virgil. Now, the term employ is a very tricky one, and Augustus yeah. isn't kind of pushing them on the payroll and saying, you know, this is what you should be saying. Um, the, the process by which um, people like Livy and Virgil are responding to the preoccupations of the Augustan regime is quite hard to, to pin down. Nevertheless, the kinds of things they come up with do seem to mesh very nicely with the way in which Augustus is trying to present himself. 
Greg, what, Greg, what, um, what Augustus is doing is, is turning away from the great, although it was full of civil wars and so on, the great idea of the Roman Republic. Uh, and uh, how does he square that and, uh, with, with what he is doing? Uh, because people are still extremely attached to the idea of the public in, in spirit, if not in, 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 in practice. Well, he keeps slogans. He keeps certain bits of the city retain their associations. He accumulates priesthoods, but they're the traditional priesthoods. He declares that the res publica has been restored, that the state has been put back, if you like, on a good, on a solid footing. There's a sense in which he's much more revolutionary than he allows it to appear. For instance? Well, for instance... He does centralise taxation, control of the armies, all those things into one person's hands. There's no doubt at all that the empire is run from the private house of Augustus. On, at his death, Suetonius says a document was left giving a list of what money the empire had, where the armies were, and what slaves and freedmen, ex-slaves, in Augustus' house could supply further details if needed. In other words, the whole thing's run as, as an extension of an aristocratic household. Nevertheless, throughout his reign, it's presented as the Senate and people of Rome, passing laws, passing decrees, sending out ex-magistrates, just like they'd always done in the Republic. But um, the idea that they were all Mary kind Beard. of um, looking back to this with, you know, a, a glowing nostalgia is also not entirely mm. kind of correct. I mean, we think of the Republic as being, you know, Rome's great his time. Um, but if you reckon that there'd been, you know, getting on for a hundred years of civil war, which was <laughs> a civil war of the nastiest and most brutal kind. I mean, people's bodies and body parts were nailed up in the central forum at Rome, you know, on a regular basis. You know, heads were kind of knocked around the forum. So it was really, you know, nasty, disgusting, foul stuff. And for most people, the Republic had in memory, had been um, not a, an era of freedom. I mean, there was a few big guys who lost out when Augustus came to power, but for most people, at least it, at least it meant, you know, you could you know, walk through the city centre without coming across dead bodies. Can I, Greg, can I ask you, Virgil in the Aeneid wrote around this period, O Romans, be it your care to rule the nations with imperial sway. These shall be your arts to impose the rule of peace to spare the humbled and crush the proud. Now, was that uh, civilising zeal um, part of Augustus' mission? It's very high-minded. Was it carried out? Was it? Can you talk about that? I think it's, it's very much like the sense of empire that the British have in the late Victorian period, <coughs> finally getting to the point where you understand that you've accidentally created an empire and has these civilising impacts. And I, th I think that... There are people, perhaps all the way through, who are justifying Roman imperialism in terms of its product, but it's maybe only right at the end of its expansion, Augustus, the last great imperialist, that they begin to see a pattern. Julius Caesar, Augustus's well, father who adopted Augustus, when he justified his war, still felt he had to justify individual wars against people on the basis that they'd somehow attack Roman allies or whatever. By Augustus' time, you could simply say... The gods want us to conquer the world. The gods have grant us limitless power. So the divine mandate comes at the end of the process. Was there then emerging the idea of what it was to be a Roman, have Roman virtues? And if so, what were they? Well, that's, that's also up for grabs in the Augustan yeah. period, really. And, that's why um, it's interesting. And so 
our kind of image of Roman virtues as being, you know, solid guys who, um, you know, no nonsense blokes who chop people's um, heads off and build chop, straight roads. Chop people's heads off, build straight roads, but when the going gets tough, they'll kill themselves rather than surrender to the enemy. Um, that's also a, a version which comes out of the Augustan myth-making process. You know, the, what, one of the things Augustus does is he builds this enormous forum, um, a great temple in it, but down every side he's got the heroes of the Republic, statues of them with their deeds inscribed underneath. Now, you know, we have some idea of what these said, uh, and they were glorifying texts saying, this is a model for you guys. Uh, now, actually, we know that <laughs> many of these were pretty revolting, um, you know, massacring bastards, really. But they become uh, a Roman image, you know, such as we've got in the movies, I think. And it's, it, happen it happens then. There's no sign of that in the Republic. Was there any criticism of Augustus's plan at the time, his mission, his, uh, his zeal? Were, were there poets, people at the time, saying this isn't so, or, or did he just... Did his power take him through to the, the, the mission that he was on? There was so much lust for peace. He was turning the city, plenty of work for everybody, turning it into a marble city, um, uh, and so on and so forth. Was there much opposition to what he was trying to do? Well, he was good at silencing it, and he, it's he who controls the past controls the future, as Orwell puts it. We don't have un-Augustan histories of Rome to any significant extent. We know there were books burnt in the Forum, poets who were persecuted. But we, we, also, we also can see in the texts that survive you know, a greater degree of wry irony than, than, than some interpreters mm. might think. And so that there's a, a huge debate um, when you look at these apparently um, panegyric poems about Augustus's conquest. There's always a debate about quite how undercut these are. You know, quite how far is the joke on Augustus? I was you actually reaching out, I was reaching out for Ovid, if any of you are going well, to mention Well, yes. yes, in a way. I mean, Ovid, Ovid, of course, is the poet who actually gets sent into exile by Augustus. <laughs> Ovid teases him, doesn't he, and criticises him. Yes, and, I mean, in some ways... Um, there's a, it's not entirely clear exactly why it was that Ovid was sent into exile. He says it's for an error and a poem, and people generally identify the poem with Ovid's Ars Amatoria, his Art of Love, which goes on about you know how the best way to seduce the girl of your choice, or indeed the man of your choice, um, and which could be read as running rather counter to the strongly moral thrust of the Augustan regime. Augustus had passed laws making adultery a criminal offence, for instance, and set himself up as a great kind of pillar of moral authority. This was ostensibly going back to the um, morality of the early Romans. Romulus was supposed to have been very hot on um, pursuing adulterers as well. Greg, can I ask, where, what's the Roman view of the Greeks throughout the time of Augustus? Where, did they suffer from, uh, Steve Jones keeps talking about biologists suffering from physics envy, did they suffer from Greek envy? <laughs> and were they worried that these people had been so brilliant centuries before them and they didn't have to have silly old myths? They'd got great scientists, great thinkers, great philosophers, great playwrights standing there. Uh, uh, I would get indisputably uh, magnificent. Uh, was there that feeling that they had to... What did they do about they, the Greeks? Did they, they have they, to take them on? Did they feel they had to take them on in some way? They sometimes claim they did. I mean, sometimes you can read these statements about the Greeks being civilised and the Romans not, as if it's a sign of inferiority. But sometimes something else is happening. For example, Horace will look at early Roman poetry, say, this was all rough, useless stuff. My stuff is better because I've gone back to the Greeks. So the Greeks become a charter for one group of Roman poets to 
depose another group of Roman poets. They're, they're so involved in Greek culture. Greek culture's been there in Rome since the very beginning. The earliest archaeology of the site of Rome shows that they knew about, Roman myth, about Greek myths, Greek art, Greek heroes, Greek gods. It's, there's never a pre-Greek Rome. There's never a Rome without the Greeks. And I think Greeks are a, a convenient device for thinking with. It's a convenient other that you can bring in when you're, you need to do a bit of repair on your own culture. You need to change it, update it, add new things, attack things. You go back to the Greeks. And sometimes you can say the Greeks are immoral and hopeless. And sometimes you say the Greeks taught us everything we knew. And sometimes you say the ancient Greeks were great, but the modern ones are no use at all. Like Sulla attacking Rome, stops the siege of... Attacking Athens, stops the siege of Athens and says, I spare the few for the sake of the many, I spare the living for the sake of the dead. But ancient Greece isn't there anymore. It's Roman times now. So what, what are we saying? Is the different at this stage? Romans just used the Greeks to reinforce their Romanness. Yes, that's right. But they also have all these other kind of wonderful virtues that the Greeks never really had. I mean, Cicero, in one of his philosophical treatises, talks about how um, you know, the Romans have always been better at discipline, they've always been better at morality, uh, they've always been better at fighting. But um, it, it's true that the Greeks have been rather good at philosophy, and you know, we've been catching up with the Greeks, and you know, we're about to go beyond them. Well, the it's Greeks a colossal scam, isn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, the, the, if you... If you look, who are the really literary ancient people? It's the Romans. The Romans woke up one day in the third century and decided to create a literature from scratch. The aristocrats went out, commissioned people, come in, write these things in Latin, these the genre. If you look back at the great Greek figures, the Greeks were fighters first of all. Athenians thought of themselves a militaristic power. Now, look, why was Rome that so powerful? You can pick out, as it were, Roman elements in the great Catholic Church in the great British Empire in the great American Empire, and Hitler has an eagle and Mussolini has the fascias and so on and so forth. What, what, where was its great power? Can you just... I know I'm asking you to generalise and simplify, but that's what you seem to do in ancient history. <laughs> <laughs> Surely not, no. <laughs> My evidence this morning is... <laughs> chose the wrong people. I, didn't cho- I chose the right people. I didn't choose them. Charlie did the producer, but they're the right people. OK, great. Rome manufactures a huge batch of symbols, of images, the fasces from which the, which the fascist uses their symbol, eagles, columns, great big complexes of temples and so on. <laughs> These things great. are all around, <laughs> and when the Roman Empire folds, they're available for the first Islamic societies, the first for Byzantium, for early medieval societies in the West to reuse. And it gets passed on like a baton, except it's not going forwards, it's people from the present reaching back to the past and taking these symbols because they're there and powerful. As they keep getting reused, more and more connotations surround them. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the complexity, isn't it? It isn't that Rome's a thing. Um, it's that it's an enormously complex set of ideas which you can latch into at any point you like. I mean, I think, you know, we tend to think that people want simple symbols for their cultural ancestors. But actually what's most useful is really complicated Mm, ones. Really? Why is that? Because you need to be able to turn it to your own advantage and you need to be able to let everybody play the game. Can you give me an example of a complicated Roman symbol then? Symbol. Well, I think most of the things we've been talking about, you know, Roman mythology is fine, it's a very clear ancestry for Augustus is put out, but of course it inevitably involves thinking about adultery. You know, there isn't a symbol that doesn't have its anti-symbol built into it. 
And so I think what Rome's doing, why Rome is so great, is that not only is it extremely complex, but Romans have always got there first with all this with all this chat about it. You can always find a Roman saying what you want them to say. Mm. That's right. I think Rome, Rome can be anything, and it's very important that Rome can be empire and can also be republic. So that, um, you know, on the one hand, the American founding fathers denounced um, Britain as a sort of, you know, like the Roman Empire for having all these dreadful vices of corruption and luxury, and yet they also wanted to be like Rome themselves because they wanted to identify with the mixed constitution of the Roman Republic and to identify with the, the virtues of those early heroes of Rome. So George Washington wanted to be thought of as Cato or Cincinnatus. These people who you know, sacrifice themselves for the public good. Well, thank you all very much. I'm, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm much enlightened. I enjoyed that too. Thank you, Mary Beard. Thank you, Catherine Edwards. Thank you, Greg uh, Wolf. And next week I'll be talking about the history of food with Ivan Day, Rebecca Spang and Felipe Fernandez Armesto. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.